Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And uh, we're back for another week of exciting chats and catching up. Um, and I just thought it was actually kind of a good time to maybe check in about how we've been doing so far. It's, it's um, I, I was noticing, like, Kira, you and I were talking about how I was actually sort of surprised at how many people we have already talking about health. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I was talking actually to my partner about it yesterday. We, we were discussing how like there's sort of health as a theme, there's carbon as a theme, there's social justice as a theme. And somehow we haven't talked about carbon as much as we have about the other two. Not to mm -hmm. say that those are somehow, you know, the only themes of our industry, but Right. I was just thinking about how funny it is that it sort of shook out that way. Um, but I'm super happy about it. I don't know. I think it's going okay. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think each, um, so far, all the conversations have had, I mean, they're, they're interesting because um, they're, people are coming to a very holistic topic through one or another, you know, wherever they have entered that. Um, and then embracing all those other pieces within it, um, which I find, it's just really fascinating to to sort of walk through that with each person um, and see, you know, how they've been touching the industry and in sort of in different ways. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're, I don't know how explicit we were in the first episode about talking about part of the reason that we're covering these types of topics or the reasons that we select the women that we select. But I, you know, Rosa Shang really kind of hit it pretty clearly when she talked about her work as being very intersectional with sustainability and climate change work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that was sort of what we had in mind in many ways is that we want to talk to a variety of women who come from different facets of what I would say is sort of the leading edge of our industry, but who are working on things that are not all uh, the same and sort of try to make sure people understand how, how very interconnected all of these things are. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like, I think, I think that's starting to come through, but I'm excited for, I'm excited for the f folks that we have coming up as well. Cause I think, well, we certainly don't want to under represent carbon. <laughs> so nope. I, think, nope. I think we'll get there. I'm not worried. <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely. Um but it's I you know one thing that's most interesting to me um is I think no matter what area people find themselves working in, they really do think about all those other things that they're touching. And as we've been asking people um particularly about um how they found their career paths, it's so interesting to hear how not linear those are. And totally. how they have found a, a place or, you know, opportunities to have impact in, you know, in some way in the industry and in the movement, if they refer to it that way. Um, yeah. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and it's sort of a common thing I'm seeing, even among people who are working in very different realms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and one thing I was noticing also on that note is that there, 
you do see people going through very lots of different stages of a career, having different roles. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I've been pretty delighted by is to hear how often what the through line is, is some sense of the change you're trying to make in the world or, mm -hmm. or at least, at least sort of the issues that you want to grapple with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Sarah Golden talked about that. Um, Liz, Liz talked, oh, about that. talked about that. And yep. it was just, it's really, I think, pretty amazing to hear that. And I think it's something very encouraging and maybe helpful for listeners if you're sort of struggling to think like, do I want to be a mechanical engineer for the rest of my life, etc. Um, that really, it's, I think it's less of a question of what exactly your role is that you want to be, because those things change all the time. I mean, Lord knows I've had like a lot of different, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, things I've, roles I've taken on. Right. But for me, I've always had a very clear sense, or, um, and that sense is, is what fuels my decisions about my career all the time, about, you know, the issues that I cared about, the things I wanted to create, and certainly also the people I wanted to work with. Um, right. That, that for me, you know, this is why the podcast, I think, has been so wonderful, is that I decided a long time ago that I wanted to be a part of this community, the community that we're interviewing and talking to right now, and, and that if this community held me in high regard and that I was a part of it, and that I did work that it valued that I was doing what I wanted to do, you know? That's right. And I think you heard that from, we heard that from several of our guests already about how they understood the role that they were, even, even in school, even as they were in, um, in college, they were seeing it in a different way, possibly a different way than they were even being taught about that role. Um, you know, that they came to it for a different reason or with a slightly different lens on it and then to find a career path um, coming out of that. So, I mean, I think that it, go, it gets back to sort of what are you in it for in the beginning? Like, how did you come to that? You know, what was the driver at the beginning and then how you define it um, in all those different sort of branches of the path as they as they go out through your life? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also I was thinking about how we, we've asked a lot of our guests this question about being a part of a movement. And um, I don't know if people have picked up on sort of why we're asking that question, but it is because we're trying to get a sense of whether people feel like the reasons that they got into their mm -hmm. career path or the thing that fuels them, the issues they want to work with, if that lines up with a group of people that they feel like is a community that they you know, that they, they are aligned with or not. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I hope that's coming out. I think we'll, as we get into talking to more folks, we'll try to tease that out more clearly. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's, a, I, I'm so excited now that we've started having more guests and more, you know, more announcements about the podcast and things. It's starting to really pick up and, and I could not also be more excited about our guest for today uh, who we should go ahead and, and get started with. Um, so our guest for today is Amanda Kaminsky, uh, who's the founder and principal of Building Product Ecosystems and a real leader in materials and resource management um, in the built environment. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you, Lindsay. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, um, you know, I think I first knew about you when you were at Durst um, in New York working on sustainability there, but um, you have also, you, you've, we're going to hear more about building product ecosystems. So um, 
I, I won't give too much of a bio there, but um, yeah, we're just super happy to have you here and to, to talk a lot about material supply chain, these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, uh, let's, let's get started. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I, um, Amanda, I think that it would be great to start with a little bit about how you got involved in um, both in real estate, but also in sustainability and building products and practices. If you could tell us a little bit about your path. Sure. I mean, I, I think a lot of what has informed uh, the the process uh, for you know determining what next step I took in each at each juncture in my career. Um, really is informed by this diverse uh, set of experiences, some good and some bad, um, really starting from when I, where I first grew up in a, you know, in a city, uh, the city of Reading, Pennsylvania, and then, you know, we moved to the suburbs in the midst of uh, the massive urban sprawl of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, um, you know, at the time, not really, um, understanding exactly how that compared with what could have been possible in some of these places, but um, understanding that, um, you know, I wasn't liking the strip malls that I was seeing all around and the um, the farmland and open space that what that it was replacing. Um, and at the same time, you know, when we would take trips to, you know, the beach or to national parks and, um, you know, understanding also what, um, what uh, we wanted to be protecting. Um, you know, so there's, there was that aspect of, you know, kind of becoming critical of uh, what felt healthy and right uh, with regard to both, um, you know, the diversity of a place and all of the systems that make it function well and um, some of the, the challenges that, um, that we bring upon ourselves by some of the decisions that we make in, in design and construction. Um, so then, you know, in uh, one of my first sets of jobs was uh, it, during the summer break uh, between college years where I was supposed to be doing an internship in Philadelphia and instead uh, my, my younger sister actually got pretty sick and I wanted to stay closer to home. So I took on some um, uh, manufacturing, some temp work. And so I did, um, first I elected to do white collar temp work. I really hated that. So I asked them if I could switch to blue collar temp work. And I ended up working in a bunch of different manufacturing environments um, in Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> my first job was uh, picking the goober cough drops off of the conveyor belt at Luden's Cough oh, Drop dang. Factory. <laughs> I got so sick of wild cherry cough drops. Um, I still can't look at them today because, you know, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, then just like looking up the conveyor belt and like seeing like, oh my gosh, like if we just tweaked this one aspect of that, of where the output is coming out, like we could be just like fixing this at the source and, you know, talking to the people at the plant. And like, th that was really cool and really fun and not something that I predicted enjoying about that job. You know, another job was like sewing the crotches into Danskin bathing suits and like, you know, just this really wide variety of like crazy, but the, you know, so it wasn't even just the manufacturing component to that, but the social aspects of um, understanding the challenges um, on the floor of these manufacturing facilities but also the opportunities sometimes that were realized and sometimes that were missed um, in these environments. Um, that was really eye-opening. Um, and I, I don't think I realized how eye-opening it was at the time, but it informed later on 
you know, some of my experiences. So I went to architecture school and my last, uh, I think it was my very last semester there, I had a really awesome professor, uh, this guy, Craig Barton, and we did a project where we went down to Savannah, Georgia, and had a few days to just explore uh, a community there. And the assignment was to really come up with, okay, what uh, programmatic element is this community missing? Or what uh, structure or place uh, is this community needing that it doesn't currently have? And so I decided they needed more mass transit. Uh, people were having to walk really far to get to where they needed to go. And so um, I thought a, a bus station and, um, you know, bus stops and, you know, why not make it an electric bus station with charging stations at each bus stop. And it was really, you know, because I, I didn't think they needed more uh, pollution. And so it just the whole and then, you know, we were able to have uh, conversations with the community about this and the the feedback loops that were um, initiated through those conversations were just like, whoa, that was like, um, you know, really like momentous for me to have that experience that really, I think, uh, informed a lot of my future work then, both from a, you know, consideration about the the synergies between different scales of systems, um, from transportation to urban planning to, you know, uh, some of the uh, materials and choice of, uh, you know, of energy sources, things like that, and how it affects the actual people of a place. And so, um, you know, from there, I, I went into architecture originally, um, but then very quickly got into the construction side of things because I felt like it was a place where I could really kind of dig in a little bit more and learn more um, in the field by actually seeing the application of ideas. Um, and that very quickly led to, um, to really getting involved with um, the decision making teams um, on the development side of things. And that led me to working with the Durst organization in New York City. So uh, yeah, so that's kind of how, how I ended up there at Durst. And so that's actually kind of a perfect transition to this new organization that you formed. I always think it's fascinating when people go from sort of, well, I would say that at least the role that you had at Durst from what I understand, is a role that people are familiar with. Like it's, you know, there's a real estate company and you hire someone, you're doing sustainability, but then you started a new organization, a totally different role, like no, no mold for what you were doing. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about the transition of going from the, what you were doing at Durst to the new organization in particular, sort of how you made the decision? I think that's a pretty big, you know, it's a big, leap for a lot of people to think okay there's an issue that I see out there in the world but like you know how do I even have a different different role in the world what is what does that look like mm -hmm. yeah so while I was at Durst I was actually originally hired there to manage um, sustainable procurement and materials management on in construction and so um, it, through that, I needed to visit a lot of our uh, manufacturers uh, facilities, also a lot of recycling facilities, a couple of landfills, and also a lot of our back of house spaces there, um, you know, in, in looking at how um, the, you know, the material streams were being managed in our, uh, in our recycling and in our uh, energy systems. And so uh, it came about that, you know, we were really looking at doing some purchasing for some larger projects and we weren't able to 
purchase exactly what we wanted for some of our higher volume material streams. And it just led us to ask a lot of questions about, well, why can't we get, um, why can't we be purchasing our concrete differently? Why can't we be purchasing the management of some of our uh, debris that's generated on our construction sites differently? Like, why doesn't this exist yet? And, and is it possible that through these large projects, we can affect what might be able to be become a more permanent uh, change to the way these materials either get made or uh, remade over time. And that kind of led us, you know, first we started asking the manufacturers, hey, can you work with us on this? Very quickly, we realized that it was, um, that was a huge ask of just the manufacturers alone, that it needed to involve our regional recyclers, that it needed to involve a lot of times local government um, to uh, evolve some of the codes. Um, and, you know, it also, in a lot of cases, needed to involve other building owners. And, you know, even Durst is a large group um, and their procurement is large, but it's still only one entity. And, uh, you know, it, it needed to be an ask from uh, more than just one large entity. And so we established in when I was at Durst in 20. 13 and 14, uh, a public-private partnership called Building Product Ecosystems at that point, uh, alongside the City University of New York, the New School, uh, the Daris, and Healthy Building Network. So it was uh, a public-private partnership amongst those groups. And we would hold uh, you know, working group meetings on a monthly basis uh, to focus on some specific uh, changes that we were wanting to bring about with, uh, with procurement, using our procurement as a driver for that change. And we didn't predict uh, the um, kind of rapidly increasing response that that was going to get from all aspects of all these different uh, uh, communities that we were working with. And it, it kind of grew to become its own, uh, you know, kind of huge endeavor. Um, and so that's, uh, that's kind of where it all started. And you know, we were gonna hire somebody to take that on and I decided, that I wanted to do it. Um, I wanted to do that full time. And so that's when I took building product ecosystems outside the Durst organization in, in 2000, the beginning of 2016. Cool, uh, and so many things. Um, and, and I also, I was interested to see if you would use the word circularity when you started talking about how the, how the journey went and you haven't used it yet. And I'm curious why, is, is it that, um, is it that it's not that simple uh, of a way of describing what you're up to or um, do you just like the uh, jargon or is it just coincidence? I guess, I, you know, I see, it's a really good question. Um, I see, I, and I think of the word ecosystem as the embodiment of, you know, ultimate sustainability, ultimate circularity, because it's, you know, this constant generation of, um, uh, you know, ideally nutrients or, you know, uh, materials that then get uptaken by another process, but where, where waste isn't being generated. And an ecosystem seems more, it's more complex and it's more like the, uh, I think it, it, it uh, tells more of a story about the reality that we face when we're trying to do this um, on the ground and create, um, you know, where it's not necessarily natural. And so we're building these ecosystems, um, you know, ourselves through uh, collaborating with all of these different entities that are required to make it work. And it really, in order for it to work, 
these uh, these different components in the ecosystem uh, need to need these different uh, you know materials and nutrients and um, substances within the system for it to really be a sustainable kind of you know long term uh, beneficial ecosystem and so I just think for me the way I picture all of this um, in my mind when I envision you know what is what is it that we're doing you know circularity it's very simple and I think it um, you know you know just even picturing a circle I think it's a very effective for conveying what we're really trying to do by moving from linear to circular but then you know when it comes into play in any circumstance I think ecosystem really uh, tells more of that story about the complexity of it. Yeah, that's awesome. That re that's really um, helpful for me, actually. That's very sort of educational, because I do think, it, to me, it reminds me partially of just what it means to dive deep into something to the point that you understand that it's, you know, surface simplicity is not quite, <laughs> you know, what you thought it would be, and you sort of, and you get all of these different threads of it. But yeah, I mean, I can say from my bits of experience working on supply chains uh, that, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's never a simple matter of what I, I could imagine someone looking at some of your work and saying like, all right, so the idea is to take old drywall and make it into new drywall. And you, you know, somebody's got to go pick up the old drywall, put it in a plant and make it into, the, you know, like that kind of thing is a total underestimation of, of what it is. And, and also sort of a, uh, not as beautiful of a vision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. yeah. I don't know, and I think it's um, it's just interesting because um, yeah, there really are just so many um, players, and I've found over and over again that you know you can have as this this wonderful idealized scenario about how things really should work because it's the right thing and it's the you know most beneficial thing for the environment. Um, but if it's not working for people um, economically and truly working, not, you know, ideally not subsidized, you know, ideally it's, it's really making good economic sense for their bottom line because it just is, um, you know, it's a, it's a high quality material. Um, it's easy to get um, all these things. Uh, it, it doesn't, it, it's not going to last, you know, it's great if there's one person that pilots something, but if, it, if that piloting wasn't used to kind of work out the kinks to get it to a place where it's really easy for others going forward, then it, um, it's sort of a moot effort. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I was actually going to ask if you could maybe illustrate an example or two for our listeners of the kind of work that you're doing, um, using something sort of that people can kind of get their heads around um, from whatever angle of the ecosystem you want to, but just to give everyone a little bit of that vision of, of the products and, and flows and things. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so with the glass and concrete effort that we're focused on right now, uh, we're, um, we're really kind of combining two systems um, where we're taking glass from municipal recycling. So bottle glass, um, which uh, I think there's just as much of being generated right now as there as there ever has been, uh, despite many restaurants being closed. Um, and yet, I think there's a big challenge in. Uh, I know there's a big challenge in a lot of places uh, having sufficient end uses for that bottle glass. Ideally, you know, the the ultimate is to have 
you know, bottle glass going back into remaking new bottle glass. Um, there's a lot of bottle glass manufacturing that has closed or consolidated in the U.S. And so because glass is very heavy, uh, we don't we ideally don't want to transport it very far um, to where it gets processed. And so a lot of that glass is getting landfilled. So we have that problem in the glass, municipal glass recycling industry. Um, alongside that then in the concrete industry, we're consistently working to, as an industry, to replace um, a, a cement and lower our carbon uh, impact of, of concrete overall. Cement tends to make up um, about 10 to 12 percent of a of a typical concrete mix and yet it, it accounts for the vast majority of the carbon impact of a concrete mix and so by replacing some of the cement content and in a lot of cases we're seeing capabilities to replace uh, 40 and 50 percent of the cement in a concrete mix which is fantastic we are lowering that carbon impact but also by doing so we're improving the performance of the concrete mix and so Traditionally, uh, cement has been replaced by uh, fly ash, which is a byproduct of uh, coal-fired power, or by blast furnace slag, which is a byproduct of iron manufacture. And obviously, I think we all know a lot of our coal-fired power plants are going offline, are switching to natural gas, or just not uh, operating at full capacity. And so therefore, there's far less uh, fly ash uh, being generated and the projection is that uh, that will continue to diminish that that supply. Uh, same thing with regard to uh, blast furnace slag, a lot of our iron and steel manufacturing uh, in the US has, uh, you know, is, is happening abroad and the types of steel that are being manufactured are not conducive to the production of, um, of blast furnace slag. And so, across the board we're you know we're kind of um looking at a future that has less availability of traditional cement replacements and so we were already um making or getting block uh purchasing block uh cmu that replaced some of the uh cement component with um using glass using uh municipal recycled glass so we started to ask um, the supplier we were working with, Urban Mining, if they could uh, do the same thing, but with ready mix concrete, with poured in place concrete. And um, so over the last um, uh, 10, oh my gosh, no, maybe more like eight years, we've been, um, you know, working on uh, researching and um, then uh, starting in 20, 14, 15, 16, starting to pilot um, uh, pours with uh, ground glass puzzle and replacing the cement component. So this, you know, given that we're working, you know, we started doing some sidewalks um, and uh, they were doing some precast plank, but then, you know, really getting into structural concrete in high rise residential buildings. Um, there's a couple of bridges um, that are being poured later this year. So as you can imagine, it's super important to be incredibly careful in this process. This isn't just, um, you know, we have to be in really, really careful about the testing that happens uh, to ensure that uh, the structural integrity of the material is you know what it needs to be um, and so we've been working with a lot of different people to make that happen including you know some really progressive building owners um, the Department of Transportation and Department of Design and Construction in New York City um, and uh, alongside you know uh, 
ASTM. We actually just got the uh, quality control standard specification for the use of this material as a cement replacement in concrete that just was published actually last week. So that's a really big deal because yeah, yeah like we set off to, you know, kind of first research, then pilot, then standardize and then scale. The standardization is super important to the scaling. I mm-hmm. was kind of dreading the standardization part because I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, spending, you know, I was told it was going to take like seven years, uh, if you're lucky to get like a standard actually fully written and approved. Um, Luckily, it took us um, less time than that. It took us about three and a half years, um, but with a really awesome group of people. But it was a, I have to say, it was a very rewarding experience to just go through the rigor of that process. um, And, you know, to be where we're at right now and know that there's this standard that everybody can be referencing and, and trust and feel confident that um, that you know they're going to end up with a good product if they follow the guidance in that standard. So yeah, so that's, um, that's like one example of kind of merging a few different industries to get to a place where there, uh, we have a symbiotic result that doesn't cause new problems, uh, but um, you know, solves for those challenges in those industries. That's fantastic. Um, Amanda, it's, strikes me that just being able to talk to all those groups of people is um, sort of a feat in and of itself. I mean, really learning how to communicate in language that they appreciate and build trust with them, making, you know, to be sure, as you were pointing out, that it does make economic sense for them and that the goal, it's not just to do this better thing because it's better, but also to make it work for everybody within the context of their industry and their, you know, frame of thinking and all of that. So I'm, just from a communication standpoint, I really admire that exercise. I also think I I had an opportunity earlier this week to reread um, Dana Meadows' Leverage Points in a System, which is one of the great sort of systems thinking essays. Um, It's been such a, I haven't looked at it for a long time, but someone posted it on LinkedIn on Monday morning, and it was just dropped in on me at a lovely time. And it strikes me that you're kind of a queen of systems thinking. Um, You have to be to be able to do what you're doing. And to sort of see all the threads and all the pieces that everything's touching and all the different industries that it's touching and then understand how to be able to work with each of them. Um, So given, I'm just curious in in the context of that, sort of wondering if you see yourself as as part of a movement and what makes you feel that way or not. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess I see myself as part of a, I see the umbrella movement as being one about health uh, very broadly. Um, You know, I guess sometimes I get a little frustrated when, you know, people ask uh, someone, hey, are you focused on carbon or are you focused on material health or are you focused on, um, you know, operational energy efficiency or, you know, I think at, at, their, at all of the core of, of each of these issues, it all really ties back to health. If we're talking about climate and carbon, if we're talking about um, material feedstock uh, cleanliness and safety, it, it all, you know, it all um, is, is tethered to this theme of the health of people, the health of places, um, the health of, uh, you know, our ecologies. And I think, um, yeah, so I I do see myself as being part of that movement. It's a little more challenging to say that I'm, you know, specifically tethered to any one of those Mm -hmm. subset uh, um, movements, which I think people probably more closely identify with. And I can appreciate that at different moments in time, there's more of a need for one than another because of the specific skills that uh, that each individual can bring to 
uh, what they're working on, um, uh, you know, and, and the opportunities that arise. Um, but yeah, so I, I kind of see it as that broader health movement, though. Sure, sure. Well, it, and so speaking to that broader, and I, and I love that idea of there being, being sort of something that's encompassing all of those other more focused activities, but all dry, with the bigger driver of health. I mean, it is this where you thought we would be on on health in that regard in 2020 um, as a movement or an industry working towards that aim? No, um, I thought that we would be farther along. Um, and I, you know, there's part of me that certainly is an optimist, but um, you know, there's definitely been a lot of regression in a lot of ways. Um, you know, more recently, and I think, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it is a little distressing, but I think that there's also a lot of room for improvement. And I think we have a lot of folks around the world that are really vested in making those, uh, those improvements. Um, and I, I think, I think transparency is really key to all of this, you know, a, a transparent, uh, science and um, you know I, 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 the more we can uh, get to a place where we have full transparency across the board and accountability across the board whether we're talking about you know the carb the embodied carbon of uh, impact of something or whether we're talking about um, you know actually for real what's in uh, you know a, a, a material that we're um, installing in a building or you know what is the true um, verified recycling rate of a recycling facility and you know what do the what then what does that data tell us about um, you know where we should be putting our efforts going forward I think that there's um, a lot that's getting lost in translation because we're not everybody's not all focused on the same verified um, transparent data to begin with. And I think that that can confuse um, the path forward. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, that, that part, part of me is also sort of surprised at how long that's taken. Uh, we were actually speaking with Gail Vittori recently um, about health product declaration work and transparency of data and these kinds of things and asked sort of, you know, whether uh, whether she felt like the pace had been at what it was. And, and I, I guess I just thinking about what you're saying and the process that you've had to follow and standards and all of these things, it feels to me like maybe on a day-to-day -day basis, everyone feels like the work is getting done uh, that needs to get done. You know, like mm -hmm. the, 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 the sort of the bureaucracy takes the time that it takes to, <laughs> or the systems take the time that they take to get to, to express that change. Um, but that we all had this, uh, we all have this sort of compass almost that says like how fast we should be going and where we need to get to. And we don't necessarily, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't, I, I, I thought we would have been farther along at this point, I guess. So, so do you feel like, do you feel like it, it's a, there, there are things that you wish had happened differently in the past, or is it more a question now of like, how do we, how do we pick up the pace today? Yeah, you know, it's just something that I talk with my kids a lot about um, uh, with regard to, you know, what you have the capability to change now um, and, you know, that it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to spend a whole lot of time um, regretting what's happened in the past. Um, this was specifically around a file that my daughter deleted by accident yesterday, but... <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, you just gotta hunker down and file it and redo it because you're just losing time. So, 
We've all been. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, it doesn't happen as often now as it used to back in the days of like word processors and all of that, right? But anyway, um, and um, but uh, yeah, I think um, I think it just is what it is, and you know, there's there's aspects, there's signals that um, are showing me personally that um, that there's that that there's a, a groundswell in a lot of these areas, you know, specific to health product declarations, you know, there's 6,000 health product declarations right now in like a, a pretty broad category of building materials. And that's a really big deal. I mean, that's a lot of information and transparency that manufacturers have really stepped up to provide at the demand of, uh, of you know, uh, people in procurement, but sometimes also just of their own accord because they think it makes sense to do that, to provide that information that enables them to have a deeper relationship with their supply chain um, and to really learn more about their own products themselves for um, makers of products that are relatively complex. So I, I don't regret where we're at right now because I don't think it, you know, I just don't think that that's productive, but I, I think that, um, is, you know, sometimes, you know, and it's almost always due to some somewhat unfortunate circumstances as we're in right now. But I think sometimes when things slow down a little bit, people have time to be a bit more thoughtful about uh, circumstances on uh, as a whole. And, and what are, you know, what are some of the things that we're doing wrong that we can do better going forward? And, you know, we, we saw this happen after the last um, economic downturn, which, you know, nobody knows exactly how this will and won't compare to that uh, for certain. But I think there was a lot of um, innovation that happened mm -hmm. um, 2009, 2010, 2011. Um, and, you know, I think when things, yeah, when things go slower, uh, people just uh, can take time to be a little bit more innovative and thoughtful. And my hope is that, uh, that's a silver lining to what's happening right now because we need silver linings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about this as you're talking. I think part of it, part of the trick with a lot of the work is industry adoption, right? Having more, more people in the building industry who are asking for these products and, um, you know, sort of willing to pay to some degree. Although I think we all know how to debate the question of, you know. The, the notion of added cost. Um, and I'm curious whether you see an opportunity right now um, with all of the resetting of our economy that seems to be going on, at least in people's heads, for increased adoption, for increased, you know, sort of demand um, for, uh, yeah, product, for health product declarations, for example. And, it, it, you know, if you do, do you have any sense of what, how you think that might happen or how we all can participate to make that demand go up? Yeah, I mean, I think health is obviously a front of mind for a lot of people um, for some very um, acute, uh, urgent reasons. Um, but the, I think that that consideration, um, hopefully, you know, continues to, to tie back to other themes of, uh, of people's lives and, uh, you know, make some of these considerations less abstract. Uh, I think that's a real challenge when we're talking about climate, um, when we're talking about uh, material health. It, there's a lot of abstraction for people sometimes if they're not experiencing a, an acute, um, you know, symptom of, of these things, or if it's not identified as a, a symptom of the problems of, uh, you know, unhealthy materials or 
climate uh, climate change. You know, so I think um, I I think that um, you know health is is uh, you know not the 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 focus on health. I think will remain. Um, you know, one aspect that does get referenced a lot is you know uh, is cost, and I think. You know, it it does cost some money for manufacturers to create uh, to you know spend some time researching um, their supply chains to understand you know the the uh, characteristics of them and the health considerations, whether we're talking about environmental health considerations or human health considerations. But um, I haven't heard uh, many, or really, I can't even think of a single manufacturer that has come to me and said, hey, you know, this is a waste of my time. I, I, you know, think this wasn't worth it. You know, I think it always ends up deepening relationships between manufacturers and purchasers um, because of the, you know, the, the, the deeper understanding about the function of the different components of the material and maybe how they can innovate together going forward. But I do think it's valuable for these manufacturers to understand more about their own supply chains. Um, and, and very frequently, uh, these healthier materials aren't costing more or where they are costing more, uh, purchasers are increasingly understanding, um, you know, uh, maybe all of the different aspects that factor into quote unquote costs. So not just, you know, uh, the cost in dollars, but environmental and health costs of, um, you know, uh, using healthier materials or not. And I've been lucky to work with a lot of, of purchasers that do have that mindset where they're looking at um, you know, these things being a good investment. Right. And really, you know, over time, we also see the, uh, we're also increasingly seeing cost parity between, you know, um, the the products that are uh, innovating to, uh, you know, to really work with materials and substances that are healthier over time. You know, I think those, those ingredients are becoming more and more available the um the innovation behind them is becoming more um more common um and so uh, that, i think that's a good thing too yeah sure i mean it, it would be really interesting if if health being front of mind in such a public health way that is happening now translated to more of an understanding of value of of, of investments in health over time rather than just straight cost. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of an interesting thought. Um, well, Amanda, I also wanted to ask you, I want to shift gears just a little bit because we're going to need to wrap up um, pretty soon. I'm really curious about who you are most inspired by these days in terms of leaders, really in any field or any realm. I don't want to limit it to the industries we've been talking about necessarily. Hmm. I mean, Really, anybody and everybody that actually just gets things done and doesn't talk about getting things done is inspiring <laughs> to me. But, I, you know, I've been looking a lot to municipalities to lead in, you know, the in recent years, really. Um, and um, I think they're both bi uh, big enough and small enough to make lasting local change that can be um, regionally contagious, like the good kind of contagious. And I think looking towards cities to actively synergize um, their outputs and inputs to like really nurture local capabilities for job creation and, um, you know, and for the diverse populations that they hold. Mm -hmm. An example of that, I would say, is um, I've just, I've been um, excited about some, a couple of the things that Portland, Oregon has done recently with regard to a low carbon concrete initiative. And I think it was really intelligently 
executed and um, alongside also um, a deconstruction ordinance that has been in place for a few years and they kind of keep improving upon. I think it checks a lot of boxes with regard to um, with regard to workforce development, but really looking carefully at what the market can bear right now and how to nudge it forward uh, year by year. And um, I just, I, I think it's been very smart um, and, you know, intelligently executed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, I think, a model um, also when, I, when we talk about ecosystems, um, the, this is a kind of an old example, but one that still, I think, is very resonant um, is, is the Kallenborg uh, Eco-Industrial Park in Denmark, um, where, you know, they do have this system of, um, of you know, industries that really kind of organically, uh, you know, came together to utilize one another's uh, byproducts um, and to the benefit of each individual, uh, um, uh, you know, participant in that eco-industrial park. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, more examples of that, the, the, the challenge with that is it's hard to force that it kind of, I think it works best when it does um, organically come about, but I think um, I'm hoping that, um, you know, municipalities can do what's needed to nurture, um, you know, more of this type of industry um, happening closer to city centers so that we're not, uh, I feel like the impacts of how we're making materials right now and then um, landfilling, it, a lot of that is, uh, that burden is being borne by communities that don't have a, a big role in the decision making. And I think the, the more we kind of are able to firsthand see the impacts of manufacturing and uh, the, you know, the waste that we generate, I think we make different decisions because it, it's not abstracted to us. Yeah, that reminds me of that. There was a great frontline documentary recently that uh, covered sort of, it was more on the recycling side, like the, I guess we're all used to these to some degree, the recycling exposés and things, but uh, it was, I, I thought, pretty thoughtful, pretty helpful and sort of hmm. bringing it home to like, who are the actual human beings that are affected by um, the way that we're doing things now? And doesn't that sort of, you know, I think it does a good job of inspiring people. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, as does your work, um, which <laughs> we're, I, I just can't say enough about how, how great it is to see, just as Kira was saying, um, how systemically uh, you approach this. So thank you for taking the time to, to chat with us about it today. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that's it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to our listeners. Uh, please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. So yeah, we'll talk to you next week. Take care, everybody.